Today we are going to talk about money. It's a sensitive subject for a couple of reasons. First of all, because people like it a lot. Uh, Not so much the actual bills themselves, but the things that that can be purchased with those bills. And so, truthfully, uh, you probably like money. I mean, it's probably in you. You're thinking, oh no, already? He's going to try to take away my money. And you don't like it. And the second reason that money is such a sensitive subject is because the church has a rap for wanting to take people's money and sometimes guilting people into it. And, and you know, maybe it's your first time here and maybe you're not a church person and when you woke up this morning, you thought, I really don't know if I should go because the pastor's going to get up there and he's going to try to get me to give money. And and so now you're here and here I am and, and maybe I'm younger than the guy you pictured. But other than that, it's just like the nightmare that you had last night about showing up. Now, if you're a, a millennial, my generation... Then, then you think, just in general, this is what churches do. That churches are full of, of guys that, that pastor and they want power and they want money. And you, you really don't see, in your generation at least, much of a reason for church because church is just full of a bunch of political people. That's the one thing you don't like. And the other thing you don't like is that it's full of a bunch of people who just want your money. And so, so here we are and we're going to talk about money and, and I want to kind of diffuse your fear, uh, your anxiety, maybe your anger that I started talking about it in the first place. And so let me just give you uh, some things before we look at, at Malachi chapter 3 today. First of all, I rarely talk about money. Uh, you may not believe me if it's your first time here, but you can ask somebody after the service. Uh, I, I tend to think that, that God's going to come through as far as finances go, and we'll talk more about that in a second. And I, I tend to think that, that if we're doing the things that God wants us to do, then it's going to work out. And so I don't, I don't often feel a need to get up here and, and spout off about how we need more money or, or things like that. And, and, and the truth is, today, we are only teaching on this because... It comes up in the book of Malachi. Uh, in fact, another thing that I need to make clear to you is that there is no major financial crisis here at Creekside Bible Church. In fact, uh, we are doing fairly well financially. Uh, we could use a few more dollars, as always, and uh, we're not quite meeting the budget. Something else we'll talk about in a second. But when I look at our financial situation and, and kind of compare it to some other financial situations in people's lives and other churches, given the economy right now, we do pretty good. I mean, we pay our bills every month. Uh, We're not $40,000 in debt. We have some money in the bank, and so we're doing good. So this is not that sermon where I get up here and I'm like, we really need money, and so you need to start giving. It's not that at all. Now, here's the other thing. Uh, I want you to know that, that I am a salaried employee of Creekside Bible Church. So if you drop a million dollars into the offering plate next week, then I'm going to get paid the same amount of money that I already do. The church has been very gracious to me. I I get paid what I think is very fair. And I'm sure next year, as as you and the transition team work to have a new budget, that you'll pay me fairly again. And and so this this is no way connected to my pocketbooks. Uh, I I am looking for a truck right now. Uh, But but that is not why this sermon is happening. Uh, And so, because I'm I'm looking at an $800 truck. So, So there you go. And so... Uh, I don't even want a nice one because I'd be scared to wreck it and I just want to throw rocks in this truck and stuff. So, this is not connected to me making money. Uh, and, and let me tell you just one more thing. 
The other thing is this, we already passed the offering basket around, right? And and so this is not like the setup, now we're going to pass you an offering basket, and, and now we're trying to get more money to come in. This really is... Uh, a teaching from Scripture that is very important because God thinks it's important. And so this morning, this is not about getting more money in my pocket. It's not because we're in a financial crunch. Uh, and and the last thing, I'm not. It's not going to be a thing where I try to guilt you into giving any percentage of money even or any amount of money. Uh, I just want to encourage you this morning through this passage to be obedient to what it says and to really examine what what God has called you to do. With money, and it's a big deal. So, uh, Malachi 3, verse 6 through 12 specifically, and uh, verse 6 says this I, the Lord, do not change. So, you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Now, this is connected to last week's passage of Scripture a little bit, but, but the people are not living for God as we've seen in the book of Malachi. And, and, and here in 3.6, we see this very important statement because God is really, really angry with the Israelites at the time of this writing. And it might be in some of their heads, something that is pretty common thought even in the church culture today. Maybe we have done too much wrong for too long and God is not willing to forgive us anymore. I mean, you know people like that, right? Have you, maybe if you're a Christian, you've had that conversation. If you're not a Christian, maybe it's the reason you're not a Christian. But you say, man, if God knows all the bad things I've done and for how long I've done them, then there's no way that God is going to allow me to be forgiven and to have a relationship with Him. Now the people, as we'll see in a second, are under a curse. And the curse is simply this. Uh, It's really the removal of God's presence from their country and the removal of His favor. And so they are under a situation where they are oppressed by another group of people and they are struggling with their crops and people are getting sick and dying and they're thinking, this is really bad. And they know. The Israelites know this better than we know this. The the thing that they need to have blessing is God's presence. I mean, the people aren't thinking like, God, just fix this. They are thinking and they know if God will return to us, then life will be better. We'll have more joy. We'll have more peace. And so this promise in verse 6 is really important for us today. And it's important for these people. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob are not destroyed. Now here's one more thing. There's this thought that kind of exists that the God of the Old Testament was mean and the God of the New Testament is nice, right? Maybe you felt like that when you're reading and, and you get into some of those books where the Israelite people are going around and they're killing other nations entirely. And you think, wow, that God is mean. And then I get to the New Testament, he's nice. But listen to words like Psalm 103.8. It says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. In that verse, the word for love is a a Hebrew word. Uh, Hesed is the Hebrew word. And and it means, basically, covenantial love. It's the idea that God loves the people not because of what they've done or because they continue to do right, but because a long time ago, with their forefathers, He made a promise and said, I will love you and I will continue to love you as long as you stay in a relationship with me. Uh, The Net Bible actually translates Psalm 103.8 as loyal love. And so when we see here, God does not change. The point is this. Look, I'm the same God who made a promise with you thousands of years ago. 
I will be the same tomorrow. And so right now in this situation, even though you have turned your back on me, you're offering horrible sacrifices, you are divorcing the wives of your youth, you are marrying foreigners, even though all of that stuff is happening just like I did before, I still want to have a relationship with you today. I have not changed or else you would be destroyed. And then in verse 7, Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we don't know the time of their ancestors and what that means. Some people think it means all the way back to the time of Abraham. And ever since God came into a relationship with the Jewish people, they've been disobedient. Some, and and this may be the best, think it it refers to their time in the desert after God took them out of Egypt and exiled them and they wandered in a desert. They consistently turned their backs on God. They made false gods. They they said, God, we're going to complain and we wish you wouldn't have brought us out here and we were better in Egypt. And they continually just just were in conflict with God. And, and some people think it, it means the generation right before the book of Malachi and what happened there is some of the people came out of exile. You can read it in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. And they came back and they started to live for God and they were excited and they celebrated God. And then in no time at all, really just a generation, they, they turned their backs on God again and, and were disobedient to Him. But whatever it is, the point at the end is quite clear. God says, return to me, And I will return to you. Now, here's the deal. This is is so key. For us who are Christians, first of all, I'll just say this. There there is no time like the present to return to God. And this is what Satan and our minds and kind of our psychological framework does to us. I, I think that we get trapped doing things that God doesn't want us to do because we think, well, I've already done it so long And God, you know, if I ask for forgiveness and I repent and I I try to go the other direction, God's just going to still be mad at me. And so I'm just going to continue on in the way that I've been living. And and I think that trick gets played in our minds over and over and over again where where we say, I'm going to quit, I'm going to stop doing fill in the blank. And then the next day we're like, I still feel really guilty. And I don't really know that God has forgiven me. And so whatever, I'm just going to give in to this again. It's no big deal. And I think the people probably wonder that. I mean, really, if we return to you, God, you put us under this curse and things are really bad. If we return to you and we actually start to live our lives for you once again, then are you actually going to return to us? Is it worth it? And God's answer is quite clear, right? I mean, it's quite clear. If you return to me, I will return to you because God does not change. Now, for those of you who aren't Christians, I mean, this is important too because you've never turned to God. But but God has not changed. And and He gave His Son, that's what the New Testament tells us, 2,000-ish years ago to die so that you could be saved. And He's still in heaven saying, I would like you to be saved any time that you want to return to Me, come to Me for the first time, then I am willing to come into your life and be a part of you and be in relationship with you forevermore. And so this is important. And, and for them, for these people who are wondering, is it worth it to return to God? Is He still going to be angry with us? Is anything going to change? And it's worth it for us today because these same questions that God proactively answers are present in our minds today. If we return to God, if we repent, if we start to live for Him, is it worth it? Because will God forgive me? Will He return to me? Will He begin to bless me once again? That's the question that God answers for us. Now, here's... What they ask, how are we to return? 
Now, this is a logical question, right? I mean, sometimes retroactively we like to go back into the Bible and we think, those people are stupid. I mean, those people are idiots. How could they not know? I mean, look at what it says in the next verse. Of course they were doing this, this, and this. But, from their perspective, they're kind of going through the motions in a way that they think should please God. We talked about the sacrifices, and we'll get to verse 8 in a second. But with the sacrifices, they were still bringing animals to die for the glory of God, for forgiveness of sins, things like that. And so, the question for them throughout the whole book is like, well, why aren't you happy with the things we're doing? Because in some way, we are meeting the standards. Now, we know that they were half-heartedly doing that. We talked about that. We know that they were doing it in a way that cost them nothing. And we know that they were doing it in disobedience in certain areas. And so God wasn't pleased with them. But, but, but just kind of pictured. I mean, you're going to church every week. You're singing along to the songs. You're saying your da- daily prayers. And God looks at you and says, Hey, if you will return to me, then I will return to you. I, didn't, I don't remember doing anything that horrible. I mean, hey, what about the guy that lives next door? These people, for them, they're saying, what about the nation next door? What about the nation that is ruling over us right now? They just literally worship to false gods. They hate you. But me, I'm going through all these things, and I'm doing all of these rituals, and so why would I have to return to you? Hey, God, I think you sent the letter to the wrong country. Send it to the Persians because they need to hear this message, not us. And here's God's answer to them. Not what you want to hear ever. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Now, it's pretty clear, right? He's saying you are stealing from me. And if you looked at the Ten Commandments, you would see that it was a sin and it was wrong for them to steal from each other. And so to rob from God is really bad, right? Right? I mean, think of it in terms of this. If you steal something from your neighbor, that's bad. You'll get arrested. You'll go to jail. If you try to steal something from the White House, it's really bad. True? Right? Vic... One of our elders at this church one time told me this. This is just coming to my head right now. But he said, and I don't know how this came up in conversation, if you're ever going to rob something, rob a 7-Eleven and not a bank. <laughs> His reasoning was this. If you rob from a 7-Eleven, you'll get the same amount of money as a bank, but it's a federal offense if you steal from the bank. <laughs> and they will catch you. It's not a tip, but it's a good illustration, right? And so the truth is... It's worse, right? I mean, to rob from me is, is bad, but to rob from God is really bad. And so these people have to be stopped in their tracks when they hear this. Will a mere mortal, will one of you, rob me, God? And they say, how? How are we robbing you? I mean, that's not possible. It's not like I fly my spaceship into heaven and I steal something from you. I haven't, and this is probably more to the point. They're thinking, I haven't taken anything out of the temple. I mean, I haven't gone in there, grabbed some of the food, grabbed some of the money that sits in one of the storehouses, and brought it out. I have not done anything like that. And so how can you say that we are stealing from you? And here's what God says. In tithes and offerings... Now, a tithe is a tenth part, just so we're all on the same page. And if you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, what you would find is that the people were supposed to sit a tenth of all of their crops aside for God. And what that meant is that they would take a tenth out of their produce and they would give it to the temple so that the Levites and the priests, the people who worked in the temple, were able to have food without needing to work. 
If you were to go back to the book of Nehemiah, you see quite a bit about it. It's just written right before this book. You see quite a bit about tithes, and they restore the tithe, and the, and the food starts to come in. And then Nehemiah, who was the guy that book is written about, right? He goes back to Persia, where he was actually a pretty high-ranking leader. But he's a Jew. And after he leaves Israel, he goes back and he does his Persian work for a little while. And he comes back, and what he finds, and it's not a good thing, is that the priests and the Levites have had to go back to their own land, and they're no longer leading the temple worship because they're having to grow their own food because the people have stopped giving their tithes and their Offerings, And so, what we see is that, that the tithe was a tenth part of the people's produce that was supposed to be given so that the priests and the Levites could live without having to grow their own food because God had given them a very specific task. Uh, tithes come up in 17 chapters of the Bible. Uh, Matthew 23, 23 is maybe the most clear teaching in the New Testament. It's not that clear, but here's what Jesus says to the religious leaders. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And so in that, we see that while the, the tenth for the Jewish people was a pretty hard law, it, it didn't mean that, that it was something that they could just say, hey, I gave my tenth and now I don't have to take care of anybody. I don't have to show social justice to the hurting people of the world, specifically for the Jewish people, always the widows, the orphans, and and the foreigners. And, and, and so it wasn't for Jesus just an excuse to say, well, I gave my money and now I don't have to do anything about anything because here it is. And they're only giving like a tenth of four spices, which I find really interesting. But, but Jesus compliments them on that. Now, the offerings referred to other gifts that the people gave to God. It could be voluntary, they could be mandated, which made it a little less of an offering, or they could kind of be a combo, like in Exodus 25, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. So it's like commanded... I need an offering from these people. But the offering is to come from people whose hearts prompt them to give. Now, here is the truth. The word tithe can be a scary word to people, and I'm not even going to push you there. This is what I want you to hear. God is angry with these people for for this. They are not giving what they are supposed to be giving, according to Him, quite clearly. In fact, He is saying that when they don't give of their worldly possessions in the way that he has called them to, then it is basically as though they are stealing from him. Now, we have to examine this and we have to think about their situation in life. One author said this, the people are neglecting the tithe because they are neglecting the things of God. And I think it's true that when... We are not right with God, then we don't put money where God wants us to put money. And when we do that, God is saying pretty clearly here, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but He is saying that is the same as stealing from Him. I mean, God has entrusted you with money, however much you have. He has entrusted you with things, however much you have. And somewhere inside of you, hopefully, God is saying, if you're a Christian, hey, I want you to give this much to these places. Church can be one of those, but I don't want you to just center in on church this morning. God may be calling you to give money to other other ministries, other things. But but this is what you need to hear. That when you don't give what God has called you to give, 
then it is though you are stealing from God himself. And verse 9 shows how important this is, how strict this is. He says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. God says, look, the curse that you're under, the one we talked about earlier, that is because you are stealing from me by not giving what I have required of you. You are not giving the tenth of your crop that I have told you to give. You are not giving offerings. You are stealing from me. And so I have taken my presence from you. I have removed my presence and now you are down there fending for yourself and the rain's not coming and so your crop's not growing and you're under the rulership of the Persians and people are dying and you're not healthy and you're not good and you're struggling along and it's because you have stolen from me. Now here's, for me, what I think is important. If you've been around our church a long time, you know that I think this is important. I think that the biggest problem with the American church today is not the programs that we do. It's not uh, the, the approach we take in how to run a church. It's not our, uh, our efforts at, at being better at matching demographics. It's not our marketing schemes. It's simply that God, I believe, has taken His presence in some ways from the American church because of the disobedience of the church. And, and if you've been around, then you know I, I harp on things like how little unity is valued and how the Bible makes clear that we need to be unified in such a way that we are willing to give to each other and, and we care about each other and we are discipling each other. And you've heard me whine about how church discipline has become like a swear word in churches and, and the mindset is that if you practice, and you can read it in Matthew 18, practice what Jesus says about church in Matthew 18, then you really can't be a church that's healthy and growing because people will just leave you and and you, you've heard me harp about these things and, and and what I always say is look I think that the problem with the American church is that God has left us in some way because we're being disobedient and here what God says to the Israelites at least is part of the reason that he has left them is because they have not given the money the things the possessions that he has called them to give I here just I just would will say this I mean just as I as I think about it I mean the question has to be asked. Is the American church struggling? And, and statistically it is, if you didn't know that. It's shrinking. Uh, the church growth that you see, like the mega churches, those all came from churches that used to be small, not because people are giving their lives to Jesus. Not all, of course, but, but the majority of those numbers are coming from smaller churches and those people are leaving because they want a light show or whatever it might be. And, 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 and so the, the church is in crisis in America. And I can't help but just ask this question. Is it because... The Christians within those churches, part of the reason, have not asked the question, what does God want me to give to Him? Or, they've asked it and they've just been disobedient. God, I don't care what you want me to give. This is my money. I'm going to hold tightly to it. I want it. I want to do this, this, and this. And I want to have that, that, and that. And you can't stop me. And so just stay out of my budget. You can have my Sunday morning, but stay out of my pocketbook because this is my money, not yours. And I can't help but wonder, the American church in crisis because partly that's been the mindset of American Christians. The truth is, a lot of churches have just stopped talking about money. I mean, right? Because we don't want to, we don't want to offend people. We don't want people to leave because the American church is in crisis. So we got to like try to get anybody we can. And if somebody's not coming back because we talk about money, then we need to do something about that. But maybe we should, maybe I, I, I'm at fault because I, I don't talk about money enough. I mean, maybe... We can see a movement of God more clearly in our country if you 
will just say, I'm going to think about what God wants me to give, where He wants me to give, and I'm going to give it, because otherwise I'm robbing God and He might pull His presence from us, and I think He has in some ways. Now, verse 10 through the end, 12, is not a promise. I hate, to, I hate this is the worst part. This is not a promise that is going to strictly apply to your life. Okay, because it looks good, and no matter what they say on TV, uh, this is not something that you can just take and, and wholeheartedly run with it. Okay, ready? Bring the whole tithe into your storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this would be the nice thing. And you find this in a lot of churches, probably a lot of churches this morning. Somebody's probably saying right now out of Malachi 3, 10 through 12, look, you give a lot of money to the church and you will get a lot of money back. And you will be happy and you will be a delightful person and everybody will like you. And all you have to do is just give us 10 bucks right now. We'll send you the free prayer shawl. And you pray over the shawl and everything will be better for you. And life is going to be perfect. You'll, you, I guarantee if you give us a little more money in the second offering that we do this morning, then, then you will be in Hawaii by the end of the week. And so will I. Uh, you know, that's what's preached oftentimes in passages like this. But the truth is, when you look at the New Testament, you see quite clearly that this is not a promise that Christians can apply. Much of what's said to the Israelite nation in the Old Testament can be duplicated in Christians. And we can say, well, I see how that plays out in us. Like, we should give the money that God wants. But some stuff that's said to the Israelite nation is just for the Israelite nation. Like, if I stopped shaving, you would be mad at me. But God commands that to the Israelite nation, right? You'd say, Chad, you need to shave that. Nobody's coming to our church because you've got food in there. But that's a command, right? That's a command to the Israelite people. Here, and with the commands, it's easy to do, right? Like, well, I don't want to follow that, and I want to eat this, and so whatever. But with promises, that's harder. I mean, don't we want to say, like... Everything will go well financially. That's pretty much what it's saying for me if I just give more money to God, however that looks. Doesn't that feel better? But when you flip to the New Testament, it's just not the case. I mean, you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men who's ever lived. I mean, the church is, is just, it took off because of his ministry. And he lived most of his life poor. And you look at, at the Apostle Peter, and then one of the first stories you see in church history is a guy's asking for money. And what does Peter say? Hey, silver and gold I don't have, man, but get up and walk. So Peter wasn't rich. And I'm guessing that Peter wasn't robbing God. And then, and this one maybe, maybe most importantly, is that we see indications in the New Testament that Jesus was homeless. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus was not robbing or stealing from God in any way. In fact, I'm sure he gave the money when, when he knew that God wanted him to give money every single time. And so when you flip to the New Testament, it would be great to say, yeah, everything's going to be better for me if I just give money and it'll all be, I'll get rich and my job will get better. But the truth is, it's not the case. It's not the case. You may be poor, you may be broke, you may struggle because you gave that money to the church or wherever you put it. That, that might be true. 
But that does not neglect the fact that God wants it from me. And most importantly, this is what I believe about Jesus, Peter, Paul, and I think it can be true in our church and around the world in, in Christians' lives. If we stop robbing God, then I think God will return to us. That he will give us his presence. And, and maybe that won't give you a better job or more money, but it will give you more peace and more joy and you will be very content living with the less money that you have because you dropped it in an offering basket or sent a check wherever you might have sent that check. And so the idea cannot be seen for us that, that we're going to get rich and that we'll never have a bad crop again, speaking in their terms. But the idea is, is quite simply, if we will stop robbing God, then God will give us His presence in a new and better way. He will remove the curse from our lives and from our churches and, and we will be more joyful and more peaceful and more content and we will be more prosperous, maybe just not in the way that right now we think is so important. And so that's it. I mean, that's what I want you to hear. And I'm going to just quickly kind of illustrate how difficult it is. But, but the truth is, what God is saying is, look, I've taken my presence from these Israelites because they have not given the money the way that I have called them to give money. And if you, talking to them, if you will give me the money that I've told you to give me, the crops that I've told you to give me, then I will return to you. I will be with you. Now here's, here's the thing. I just finished a book and... Maybe this is, I don't know, maybe this is just way out in left field, but, but it really helped me kind of see how difficult it is to give money. And, and the truth is, that's difficult. Right now, it sounds like a great idea, but when we leave here, you're going to think, I really want my money still. And, and, and the truth is, there's a reason for that. It's inside of you. Uh, back in, in about the 60s, sociologists, they started to play this game in classrooms around the country. And it was called Dictator. Maybe some of you have taken a psychology class or anything like that. Maybe you've heard of this. But the game Dictator kind of worked like this. I give you $10, and then I tell you, you can give however much of that $10 away to another person that you want to give away. And what they found was, was pretty startling, that people on average gave about $3 away when they had no obligation to give any money away. And so sociologists and economists and, and, and psychologists all started to think that, that people were by nature altruistic. That means they like to give of themselves for no good reason. But then, later on, a guy named John List thought, this doesn't seem right. People don't like to give stuff away. And so he started changing how this game was played. And what he did is he added different variations, simple variations, like now... I could steal a dollar from the other person if I wanted to. I could either give them three like I had before, or now I could steal. He added variations where both people worked together for a little while, and then they had the choice whether to give money. But when they both had money, that you could choose whether to give money or not. And what he quickly found is that people were not as altruistic as it seemed in this first game of Dictator. And so he took it to baseball card shops. And I really like it because he went to a baseball card shop. And, uh, and what he did is he would play this game in the back where he would take a, a dealer of baseball cards and a customer, and he'd take them in the back room, and he would say uh, to the customer, ask them for the best card they can give you for $20, let's say. And they would do it, and, and what they found in the back room when they, the dealer knew that a test was on is that the, the people would give them a really good card for $20. So he went out on the floor, he played it again, but he didn't tell the dealers this time. He just told the customer, he said, go up to a dealer, say, give me your best card for $20. And what they quickly found out is that those customers started to get ripped off when nobody knew that people were watching. 
And, and the truth is, the truth that John List has found and, and what he's famous for is that we are not as altruistic as some people would like to think. In fact, we are very selfish. This is, this is what the author of the book said. He un- upended the conventional wisdom on altruism by introducing new elements to a clever lab experiment to make it look a bit more like the real world. If your only option in the lab, lab is to give away some money, you probably will. But in the real world, that is rarely your only option. And then he said this, Most giving, impure altruism or warm glow altruism. You give not only because you want to help, but because it makes you look good or feel good or perhaps because you feel less bad. See what John List did? See, he's identified something the Bible's identified for a long, long time, and that is that we are sinners and we are selfish and that we usually, apart from Jesus and having the Holy Spirit in our lives, we usually just want to do what we want to do that makes us happy and, and feels good. And I would love to say that, that you're never going to feel like that again now that you've heard this wonderful sermon, but truthfully, you will. You'll leave here and you will say, I don't want to steal from God. God, where do you want me to give money? Hopefully you'll ask that. What do you want me to do with my money? What, what is it that you want me to do? And then you might get an answer. Maybe God doesn't answer you right away. Say, good, I'm good, right? We're good. We're, we're cashed out. Everything's fine. And, and it will fight against you. The, the, the physical nature, you, kind of who you were before Jesus, will fight against that and you will want to not give your money. And, and, and here's the really cool part. I'm going to read you a really long passage of scripture. But, but Jesus seems to say that he understands that, that that's in you and that that's okay because the trade-off is still good for you. The warm glow altruism is okay because in the end it's going to pay off for you even if you're giving with motives that we wouldn't consider so spiritual. Listen to Matthew 19:16 through 29. Sorry it's not on the screen. If you have a real Bible, you can open it. Uh, but here we go. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him. This is the key. Ready? Peter answered him. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? It all seemed good, like we gave up everything, but now what do I get in return? That's Peter's question. Now, kind of superimposing our Christian kind of ideas back into it, right? Isn't like, oh, Jesus' response, if I'm kind of picturing our American Jesus, how dare you, Peter? You should have just given this up for me. Yeah, I'm mad at you. Go do something. Go give me some more money. You know, I mean, that we want to make it like you can't ask that question. But, the, but listen to Jesus' answer right here. Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus seems to go, Peter, I get that in your sinful nature, you can't just walk away from stuff without wanting something in return. I'm okay with that. Because, because you will get something in return. It won't be in this life, but in the next life, it will be tenfold, it will be a hundredfold what you have now in this current earth, this current life that you are living. Philippians 4, 15 through 19, Paul gives us like three awesome benefits of giving our money away for God. This is cool because, I mean, God could have said like, hey, don't rob me, this is what I want with your money. But in His Word, we have these promises that, that seem to make it easier to give and that's all I want to relay to you here. Philippians four fifteen through 19. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. Let me just... Quickly, three things to notice there. First of all, he says, look, this will be credited to your account. That means that somewhere in heaven, God's looking down and he's seeing the money you're given. And someday that you're going to be able to cash that account out. I don't know what that looks like. I, I don't know what that is going to be like. But I know that it's true. And so when you give a dollar to God here, you're getting a hundred times that dollar in heaven in eternity. The other thing he says is that it brings worship to God. It's easy to go, well, I just don't want to rob God. I'm going to give this money and that's it. But, but God is, Paul is saying about God, when you drop that money in, it's a fragrance offering. It's something that goes up to God as a pleasing aroma, something that smells good to Him, that pleases Him, that brings Him worship and adoration. And then, and maybe just most, you know, least altruistic, I guess, is this. He says that you, who are, are money givers, who are not robbing God, will receive everything you need to meet your needs. That's something Christians like to talk about a lot, like God will take care of me. But the truth is, that's not really promised in like a monetary sense or, or a physical sense anywhere in Scripture except for within the context of you being a person who's not robbing God and is giving your money to Him. If you want to know that no matter what happens, no matter if you get fired, no matter if you have a, a health deal that, that costs you a ton of money, if you want to know that you will be taken care of, then you need to be a person who stops robbing God and gives money where God has called you to give money. You see, the truth is, it'd be nice just to say, stop robbing God because you want His presence, but I understand that we are all physical creatures that, that have things that we desire and we, we feel and we think we need. Jesus... Paul, about God, is saying the trade-off is well worth it. Not only do you have the presence of God, but you also have the presence of eternity, or the, the promise, excuse me, of eternity, and you have the promise of bringing worship, and the promise of it being credited to your account, and the promise of receiving everything that you may need to meet your needs. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for every person who, who calls Creekside Bible Church their church, and I ask that they would not rob you, God. pray that for myself pray that for everybody here and 
And Lord, maybe that means giving more money to church. Maybe that means giving money to other Christian organizations. Um, God, maybe it's just spending our money different so that we can go out and, and we can feed a homeless guy or, or, or we can take care of a foreigner in our land or, or that we can be there for widows and, and orphans, God. Maybe that's what it looks like for the people sitting in front of me. But, but I pray in no way, God, would we, would we be a people, a church that is stealing from you by not giving what you have required. And so, God, I ask for me, for everybody here listening, that when we walk away from this place today, this week, we would get alone with you and we would ask you, what is it that you want us to give? And, and we, would, we would take the answer very seriously, Lord. Uh, I pray we would examine your scripture. I pray that we would listen to the Holy Spirit inside of us. And Lord, we would just be obedient to whatever it is you have called us to. Lord, let us not, let us not think that, that this is any less of an issue than, than how we sing or how much time we spend in prayer and reading the Bible every day, God. But, but let us remember that this is such a big issue that you once removed your presence from the Israelite nation because, because of it and because of how disobedient they were, Lord. And Lord, I do pray that all around our land, God, there would be obedience to you and, and that you would return to the church in our country, God, in new and profound ways. And, Lord, I pray that by the time I die, I don't see an American church in crisis, but I see an American church thriving. I see people coming to salvation. I see Christians that don't look anything like the world because they're so, so sold out to you, Lord. I ask these things in your name. Amen.